0: Are there any people here this morning who love love Jesus? The heavens are declaring holy, holy, holy. But guess what? Jesus didn't die for them. He died for us. Amen? Amen? And so can we say holy, holy, holy? Holy, holy, holy. Worthy is the Lamb. Amen. We have the privilege of coming together to celebrate Him. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we are so thankful. While the angels can celebrate you, we have a reason to. We who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. We who have been purchased out of the slave pit of sin. We who have been rescued out of the miry clay. We who have had our feet set on solid rock. Lord, we get to celebrate you. We get to sing you. We get to praise you. Holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. Thank you for the opportunity we have on this beautiful day to gather together as children of the Almighty God, to worship you and to praise you and to celebrate you because you are the one who has done it all. You saved us, you redeemed us, and to you be all the praise. Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would minister to our hearts, that you'd remove all of the roadblocks, the obstacles, you'd remove all distraction, remove our worries and our cares and Would you leave fertile soil for the Holy Spirit to do his work in our lives? Father, would you set me aside and would you speak to your people because we need to hear your voice. And may we be convicted of the things that we need to be convicted about. Would you break us for the areas we need to be broken in? And would you set us free so that we can live and worship you as you are meant to be worshipped. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. My name is Abraham Phillip and I'm part of the teaching team here at Woodside it's my privilege and my pleasure to be here this morning with you and I extend a a warm greeting to those who are watching online with us and uh, welcome to those of you there as well. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot and a couple of his friends gave up everything that they were doing, dedicated themselves for missions work and they went and learned a language that was foreign to their own. flew a plane into an area that was just outside of the Aka Indian tribe in Ecuador, all in an effort to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a people who had never heard of the name Jesus. And there as they waited and they watched, they had an opportunity to break the ice with a couple of the people from the village who came and, and met them. They had a meal with them. And they thought they were making headway with trying to bring the gospel into this tribe, this savage land and savage group of people who had never heard Jesus and after that meal was over those people left and they waited a couple of days and then two women came out of the jungle and stood at the clearing where their plane was and thinking that things were going well and this was an opportunity now to share the gospel the men jumped out of their little tents and ran to meet the ladies and as they got closer they realized that there was something wrong those were not friendly faces they were downright mean faces in fact As they were getting closer to those ladies, some men, unbeknownst to these missionaries, got in behind them, and they were mean, and they were hostile, and they were holding their spears high. And Jim Elliott, at that moment, instinctively reached for the gun that was at his hip. Just days and weeks before that event, as he was packing for this trip, and as he was packing that gun into his luggage, his wife asked him, Jim, are you going to use that gun? And he said, no, I'm not not going to use that gun. She said, why not? He said, without hesitation, I'm ready for heaven, but they're not. And in a moment, a split second decision, he took his hand off of that pistol and those four men gave their lives as they were speared to death by those by those people in the tribe. What causes a man, a group of men, to give up the comforts of their home, the comforts of life that they had come to know, the land that they had known, learn a foreign language and go to a foreign land to die for their faith? What causes them to have that kind of conviction? What then causes a wife, Jim Elliot's wife, Elizabeth, to go to that very same tribe, to live among those very same men, the same men who had killed her husband? And share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that that tribe turns to Christ. What causes men and women to do that? What causes a man like William Borden, who was heir to the immense wealth and inheritance of the Borden family, to turn his back on his inheritance, to turn back, his back on his, his prestigious education, and to dedicate his life for missions And his heart was called to go to China. And so he boards a ship bound for China that stops in Egypt. And there in Egypt, he stops to learn the Arabic language so that he can minister to the Muslims in an effective way. And while in Egypt, he contracts meningitis, spinal meningitis, and he dies. What causes men and women to dedicate their lives, to bring the gospel message to people who've never heard them, people who are hostile to the message of Jesus Christ, people who want nothing but the death of the people that are coming with the good news of Jesus Christ. What causes them to have such conviction in their heart? I would submit to you that the reason that they're willing to do that is because they've caught a fresh glimpse of the glory of God. That they have all had an encounter with the living God. My hope and prayer this morning as we start a new message series this week is that you and I will have a fresh encounter with the living God. Because anybody who has had a fresh encounter with the living God can never stay the same, right? We can never stay the same. We will be transformed. We will change. And we will be compelled to live for Him. And we will be compelled to go for Him. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We are going to spend the next three weeks in Isaiah chapter 6. And and we're going to look at this man, this prophet that God calls named Isaiah. And today we're going to look at the first four verses. But the truth is that God, since the beginning of time, has been sending people as his messengers to be on mission with a life-changing message that there is a God who loves them. Adam and Eve were commissioned by God to go into their world and to be fruitful and to multiply. And even as we come to the last pages of the book of Revelation penned by the Apostle John, even there the church has been sent out into the world with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ found in the Scriptures. All throughout history and even today, the mission of God is still the same, that you and I have a fresh encounter with Him and we take in that moment the gospel message into our world. That's what we're going to learn this morning, that when we have a fresh encounter with God, that God's glory compels us to go. God's glory compels us to go. Have you found Isaiah chapter 6 yet? I I clearly can't wait much longer. You're there? Isaiah chapter 6. I want to share with you two truths, two things as we start this series this morning that are really important for us to be compelled to go. And the first is is that we must see the glory of God. We must see the glory of God. I am reading from Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse number 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This story opens in despair. The people are in despair because a king has died. King Uzziah, you find his story in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you find that King Uzziah became a king at the age of 16. About the time that you and I were getting our driver's license, King Uzziah was sitting on a throne. And he reigned for 52 years. Imagine having one ruler for 52 years. He was a, a brilliant man, a master administrator, a genius at military strategy. He was able to subdue the nations that are around him, the Philistines and other nations who were still in the land. He was able to subdue them. He, if you read 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you find he had uh, several war implements that he created, according to the Bible, that he invented. And he was successful. And he was one of the greatest kings that the nation of Judah ever had. And God blessed him with wisdom and success and ability and power. But somewhere along the way, King Uzziah grew proud. And 2 Chronicles chapter 26 talks about the time when he decided that he would go into the temple of God and burn incense himself. And the high priest and 80 other priests resisted him and said, You can't do that, king. That is something that is reserved for the priests to do. It is unlawful for you to do that. And the king basically said, You don't get to tell me what to do. I'm the king. And no sooner had that thought risen in his heart and in his mind that he was struck with leprosy. And he had to be exiled from the temple, exiled from the people, exiled from, the fam- from his family, and for the next eight years until his death, he lived in a hut outside the city, away and isolated from everything and everyone, including worship in the temple of God. King Uzziah died in 740 B.C., it was perhaps the worst time in all of history to die. If there was ever a time to die, that was the worst time. For the nation of Judah, it was a ter- terrible day. To put that in context for you and me, it would be like the day President Kennedy was assassinated, 1963. Now, many of you weren't alive back then, so we've got to put it more in modern-day context. It would be like when the planes hit the World Trade Centers and brought them down. Do you remember where you were, 9-11-2001? I do, it's etched into my mind. That's what it's like for this nation. It's a terrible time to die. Why? Because there's a nation in the north named Assyria who was gaining power and they were conquering nations left and right and they were a brutal nation. In fact, they were so ruthless that when, when they captured a nation, they were so ruthless, so brutal, so savage that when they were done conquering that nation, there was no strength, no resistance, no nothing left to oppose the might of the Assyrian Empire. You can go Google it. You can read about the horrific things that they did to the nations that they conquered. <clears throat> and they had their eye sit on this little sliver of land named Israel. But they didn't dare touch it because God had blessed King Uzziah. But in 740 B.C., King Uzziah died. And for this little nation of Judah, their world had turned upside down. The people of the land were preoccupied with the news because they know that Assyria has now got their eyes set on them because the opportunity to take them over is ripe. Here is a nation where everybody is preoccupied with world news. Here is a nation that's coming apart at the seams. Here is a nation that is so full of doubt and worry and wondering what tomorrow is going to bring. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Yeah, It's not very different than it is today. In the year King Uzziah died, most likely on the day King Uzziah died, we read in verse number 1 that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Where is God when our world turns upside down? Where is God when chaos and turmoil come into our lives? Where is God when the things of this world go crazy, out of control, and injustice is everywhere? Where is God when our life is turned upside down? I'll tell you where he's not. He's not wringing his hands in frustration. He's not looking down from heaven going, I can't believe those guys did that. He's not surprised. He's not taken off guard. He's not like totally caught off guard by what you do or what the nations do. God is not pouring over maps and charts in heaven trying to formulate a new plan to figure out how to deal with you and me. God is not out of control. You know where he is? He's seated on a throne. Amen? He is high and lifted up, seated on a throne. Do you know what a throne symbolizes? It symbolizes authority. And when you sit on a throne, it demonstrates that you have the authority to rule and to reign. So let me be clear. We don't give God authority. We don't make God God. He is God. Amen? He is the authority. He is the great I am. And so he is in heaven, seated on a throne. Heaven is not coming apart at the seams. It is all under control. So let me explain that. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. Or the governor's mashing. It doesn't matter that Russia is invading Ukraine. It doesn't matter COVID may be coming up or down or masks are in or out or vaccine mandates are in or out. None of that matters. Why? He's still on the throne. Oh, church. Did you hear what I said? He's still on the throne. Oh, yeah, you can give him glory. You can worship. That's all right. Because nothing catches God by surprise let me put that a little bit closer to home. When the doctor tells you you only have four weeks to live or you have cancer or you have diabetes or things are turned upside down, guess who's still on the throne? Uh, Yes, amen. He's still on the throne. Your world may have turned upside down, but he's got you in the palm of his hand. He is sovereign and sovereign means nothing happens in this universe without his knowledge and his express purpose. Nothing happens in your life. God is seated on a throne. And that's what Isaiah saw. In the year King Uzziah died, in the year when his world was turned upside down, in the year when the world was coming apart for this little nation of Judah, God is still seated on a throne, high and lifted up. People will come, people will go. Leaders will come, leaders will go. People who have money will come and they will go, but one remains, amen? From everlasting to everlasting, he is God, and he will remain even when we are done and dusted, amen? Amen. Amen. He is seated on the throne, and in verse number two, we find that the throne room of God is a busy place. It's not quiet in heaven. In fact, it's not still in heaven. It's a really busy, loud place. If you didn't like the music today and you didn't like how loud it was, you're in for a shock. Heaven is loud. Why? Notice what it says in verse number two. There are some beings that surround the throne of God. Here in Isaiah's vision, he calls them seraphim. It's the only place in scripture where that phrase is used. Literally, that phrase means burning ones. So around the throne room of God are these living creatures that are on Fire for God. They are literally nuclear powered worship angels who are worshiping God. Just picture that. And Isaiah gets a picture of their anatomy. He says they have six wings. With two, they cover their face. Why? Remember where they're standing. They're standing in the presence of God. These are heavenly beings, these are sinless beings in essence they're perfect and yet even heavenly perfect sinless beings cannot stand in the blinding blazing presence of the almighty god and so with two wings they cover their face because they cannot stand to look at the presence of god with two f- wings they cover their feet why because they're still creatures. They're not creatures of the earth, they're creatures of heaven, but they're still creatures, created by God. And so in submission to Him, and to cover their creatureliness, they cover their feet. And with two wings, they fly. But it's not their anatomy that's important, it's what they're saying. Notice that they are crying and calling out one to another in antiphonal response. And what is their song or their cry? Holy, holy, holy holy is a Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory over and over again, one to another, to another, to another. Holy, holy, holy. You realize when you go to bed today, they're still crying this out. Holy, holy, holy. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, guess what? There's still nuclear-powered worship going on in heaven. holy, Holy. Church, I hope you get it. If you don't like repetition songs, you're not going to like heaven. Because the angels in heaven are crying, help me out. Holy, 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 holy. Oh, come on, church, help me out. Holy, holy. You may as well practice here. You're going to spend all eternity saying the same thing. And we won't get tired. Why? He is holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Friends, all day, all night, day after day, from eternity past to eternity future, there's nuclear-powered worship going on as the angels in heaven are crying, holy, holy, holy. You know, in our day and age today, we have lots of ways to provide emphasis. We've got italics. We've got boldface. We can make fonts large or small, or some of you like to put endless exclamation points after something, right? So yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> and what are you doing when you put all of those exclamation points after something? What's the point of that? You're saying, pay attention. This is important. Now in our day and age, everything's important because we put exclamations after everything, right? But, but they didn't have those kinds of techniques back in the ancient world. They didn't have computers and sophistication and boldface or any of those things. And so, but they, they still had their own way to create emphasis. And in the ancient world, if you wanted to create emphasis, you used repetition. You know that to be true because when Jesus was on the earth and when he was teaching, Jesus used repetition. You remember him saying, truly, truly, I say to you. Or or if you like the King James Version, verily, verily, I say to you. Or, I'm sorry, verily, verily, I say unto you. Right? What's he doing? What's he said, what's his point when he says, truly, truly? He's saying, pay attention. This is important. And so anytime you had something repeated anywhere in the scriptures, it's trying to get your attention. This is important. But rarely is, or if ever, is anything taken to the third degree. You see, the third degree is the superlative degree. It's the supreme degree. There isn't a place to go after the third degree. And yet, notice what the angels are saying. God is holy, holy, holy. None of the other characteristics of God are ever repeated three times. God is love. But never does it say God is love, love, love. God is just. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. But none of those characteristics are repeated three times. The only characteristic ever taken to the third power is holy, holy, holy. Let me read for you how Ray Ortland put it. Ray Ortland said, Holy, holy, holy is not just repetition, it isn't one plus one plus one. It is perfection times perfection times perfection. The holiness of God distinguishes him absolutely even above the sinless angels. That is holy. Holy to the third power. And the holiness of God is so powerful, so beautiful, the angels can't but help to cry holy, holy, holy. But what does the word holy mean? You've been in church long enough. What what, do some of you, what have some of you heard? What does holy mean? You can shout it out. Set apart. Set apart thank you. The theologian in our midst. Set apart. <laughs> Anybody else? I love Joey. Don't, I, don't take that wrong. Anybody else? What does holy mean? Sinless. That's right. One more time. Righteous. Righteous. Good. Some of you have been in church good enough. That's good. That's good. Some of you haven't. Or you're way too shy. This is a safe place. I I don't buy much. Set apart. Literally, the word holy means to cut off. To cut off and to separate from the rest. So when we say God is holy, it means he's cut off from the rest because he's not like the rest. He is perfect, unique, one of a kind, in a category by himself. There is nothing and no one that looks or is like God. You believe that, church? Nothing. We have no category for God. So let me give you a mundane example for how holy can be viewed. If you come to my house, we'll offer you coffee and tea. And if you want coffee or tea, we'll go to the cupboard, we'll open the cupboard, we'll take a mug out, we'll pour you coffee and tea, and we'll serve it to you. But in that same cupboard are a whole bunch of other mugs. And there's one mug in there that is very special. It's my wife's mug. It's a mug I got for her many years ago for Christmas, and it's beautiful. It's got some beautiful Bible verses written on it. In fact, at the very bottom, after she drinks, it says, you are beautiful. And so after every cup of coffee, I get to tell her that over and over again. It's a special cup. But if you come over, you're not getting that cup. Because that cup is set apart. And if you drink from that cup, you will feel the wrath of my wife. (laughs) So will I. (laughs) Why? That cup is set apart from the rest. And therefore, it is holy. You understand? Because it isn't like the rest. Folks, God isn't like the rest. God isn't like the rest of creation. God isn't like you and me. God isn't even like his angels. God is so different, so other, so set apart, so distinct, so unique, that the angels can't stop crying, holy, holy, holy. In fact, his holiness is so powerful, so pervasive, that it can't even be contained in the throne room of God. The holiness of God spills out of the throne room of God and spills out all across his creation. And that's where you and I get to see the glory of God. Oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about holiness. Where did we get holy from? Oh, I'm really glad you asked. You see, we can't see God. We can't see the holiness of God. What we can see and experience is the, ho- is the glory of God. Why do I say that? <coughs> The glory of God is the visible manifestation of God's holiness. John Piper says it this way The glory of God is his revealed holiness. That's why Psalm 19, verse 1, David writes, The heavens declare the Glory of God, and the skies proclaim His handiwork. Why? Because the glory of God can't be contained to the throne room of God. The glory of God is the visible manifestation of the holiness of God. And so when we stand outside at night, and we look across the expanse of the sky, and we see all of those stars placed exactly where God placed them, we can see the glory and the grandeur of an almighty God. Amen? We're captivated breathtaking views of the night sky. For me, it's mountains. Whenever I see a mountain, I somehow feel God. That God creates something so big, so beautiful, so in my views that I can't help but think of the glory and the grandeur of God. Friends, Isaiah Isaiah saw a wonderful vision of God. How do you see God? How big is your God? You see, we're so tempted to be distracted by all the other things in our life that vie for our attention. We're so captivated by our social media feed or our Twitter feed, or this issue or that issue, or work emails, or whatever is going on in our lives. And we're so distracted that when issues come, we don't have time for God. And our God becomes small, and we put God in a box and our pro and thus our prayers become small and weak because we have a small and a weak god in our mental model but friends that's not god is it That's not the truth of what the Bible says. The Bible says He is holy, holy, holy. Our God is so big, even the universe can't contain Him. His glory spills all over the place. we got to throw open the doors of the box we put God in and make God who He really is, which is God. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. We don't put Him in a box. Folks, we got to let God out. (laughs) Because when we really see God for who he really is, our prayers will be bigger. Our prayers will be stronger. Our prayers will challenge us to step out in faith because we can see God for who he really is. Amen? And when we can see God for who he really is, that's when we can live for him. That's when we will be compelled to live for him. That's how we will be compelled to go. So we've seen the glory of God. We've seen Isaiah see the glory of God. And we can see the glory of God in His holiness, in His creation, and all around us. So what do we do with that? Well, that brings me to my second point, and that is that we are to show the world the glory of God. We are to show the world the glory of God. You see, God is seated on the throne. He is high and lifted up. He is supreme and sovereign over all of the universe. But while He is transcendent and up there, He's also down here. He's right here. His glory that's in heaven spills out here. We get to gather together and worship him here because he invades every part of his creation. And his desire, his desire is for every one of us not only to see his glory, but to share his glory. You see, God's will is that the praise of heaven come down to earth and that the earth would become like heaven. And that's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Let thy kingdom come, let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's God's will. That you and I worship Him the way He's meant to be worshipped. And in our worship, glory happens. And God's glory falls and displays itself through us and in us for the world to see. That's God's will. So how do we do that? How does that happen? I want to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a great example of what this looks like, of how heaven comes to earth. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's how we do it. God gives you and me light. But where does that light come from? I'm just going to take you to another passage very quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Where does this light come from? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The moment you and I gave our hearts and lives to Jesus Christ, God gave us the gift of His presence. Amen? The presence of God. Remember, in heaven it is the blinding, blazing light of His holiness. That presence lives within us. That's the light that we get to shine. Through all of the cracks, through all of the holes, through all of the weaknesses, and even all of our strengths, we get to shine the light. Because the Apostle Paul in the next verse says that we have this treasure in jars of clay. This isn't in a palace. This isn't stored in a vault. It's inside us. God who is in heaven brings the world his light through you and through me. The light that shines in us. The presence that God has gifted to us shines in and through us. How? By the things that we do. So let me bring that home. People get to see the works that we do and bring glory to God in the way we drive. How's our driving? (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So just like me. When we peel out of this parking lot and the speed limit is 35 and we're going 60, remind yourself of the verse, let your light so shine before men that your speed limit brings glory to God. When health goes down south or you get bad news or your children don't listen or your in-laws or your parents or, or your whatever, happens in life how do you handle it do you handle those things with joy or do you complain and worry and chafe at the bit and fight and scream and holler and act like everybody else forgetting that on the throne is one who is sovereign you see when people look at us they're looking for the light because they live in darkness And the light that God wants to shine in their life and into their heart comes out of you and comes out of me. That means that when I'm driving and when I'm at work and when I'm in my neighborhood and when I'm interacting with my children, the light that God has given me matters. How I react, how I deal with them, how I speak to them, if I'm angry, if I'm cranky, if I'm irritable. It all matters. Because the way God shows his glory is not just in the heavens. It's through all of us. It's through all of us. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Friends, you all believe that God is the only one worthy of glory, honor, and praise, right? Well, the only way that glory and honor and praise is ever getting to him is the way you and I live. How are we living? you and I catch the right glimpse of God, when we can see Him for who He is, when we can together with the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, our world changes, our lives change, and we get to live on mission as the light of the glory of God. Friends, that is the mission, that God who is truly holy lives out that holiness in you and in me so that the world can see you on fire for him and for the mission he has given you and me. All over the world, all over the world, billions of people are giving glory to something. Billions of people are building monuments to their own glory and yet the only one who is worthy of that glory is him seated on the throne, amen? God has sent you and is sending me. That's why we as a church put so much emphasis on world missions. There are 3.2 billion people on the face of this planet that has yet to hear the name Jesus. Did you catch that number? 3.2 billion. That's 42 percent of the population of the earth. Think of the technological marvels we have think of all the sophistication we have with all of the things that we have we still haven't reached 42 percent of the earth's population with the name of Jesus that is staggering that should be convicting it's convicting to me that's why we spend a lot of time and money and energy on world missions we spend a lot of money supporting missionaries around the world so that they can be lighthouses in the communities that God has placed them. If you don't mind to take out the little pamphlet that you received when you walked in. If you didn't, please make sure you take one home with you. If you open up to the first page, you get to see all the places where God has given us as a church an opportunity to be a lighthouse. Places no one else is willing to go. In Africa, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, 17 mission, 78 missionary units serving in 14 different countries if you flip a couple more pages you see that we we are into a bible translation so that we can reprint the bible in a language that the people who haven't heard jesus can read and understand the word of god and we're into sending people missionaries who are in the local area if you turn to the page it says church planting and evangelism on the lower left corner is a picture of an older man with a smiling face his name is king kim smith Kim Smith, in his mid-40s, decided he would go and spend a year in the refugee camp in Ghana. If you don't know what a refugee camp is, it's a horrible place. He slept on the floor, ate dirty water, or drank dirty water, ate whatever things they put in front of him, and all the while, for a whole year, he witnessed as a light in that dark place. In fact, that one year transformed him. He came back to the United States, sold everything he had, and now he has set up a base of operations in Liberia where he is beating back bushes and making new trails to villages and people who have never heard the name Jesus. He's established a church, and he's training men and women in the gospel to take the gospel to their communities, to their villages, to their tribes, so that they can hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Perhaps this morning, in fact, there are many in this campus alone who have heard the call of God and have dedicated themselves to missions. There are several families here who have dedicated themselves to be part of the Global 100 where they're going to leave the comforts of this land behind and go to a land where the name of Jesus has not been heard. My friends, the question for you and for me is, what is God calling us to do? Maybe you're not called to go. But you can still pray. You can still pray. There's a team in South Africa right now, many in our small group, who have gone to minister to women who have been abused and have been caught up in, in the human trafficking in South Africa. And they're ministering to those hurts and to those needs and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray for them. Pray for all of our missionaries. Pray that God would give them the protection they need, the energy they need, and the wisdom to faithfully proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. But maybe some of you can do more than just pray. Perhaps you can give. In that booklet, there's some very specific needs and some specific projects that we're involved in. Perhaps God is touching you and leading you to give. Whether it's going or praying or giving or all three, what is God calling you to do? You see, towards the end of the vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6, God asks him the question, and we'll look at that question in detail in the weeks to come. But God asks him a question. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? That wasn't a volunteer question. He wasn't looking for volunteers. That was really a command, wasn't it? And what does Isaiah say? Here I am. You, here, me, send me. It was instantaneous. He didn't have to think about it. He didn't have to debate it. He didn't have to pray about it. Here am I. Send me. Friends, you may not have to go into the world outside, but I'm willing to bet every single one of us has a backyard full of people who don't know Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's your very own home, your neighbors, the people that you work with, even those in in the class that you're in who haven't accepted Jesus Christ. Will you be the one who says, Lord, I'm available. Here am I. Send me. That's what Isaiah did. Isaiah became the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Prolific writer. Able to do things that most of us will never do. But God's not looking for perfection. God's looking for availability. Will you be faithful to be available and say, Lord, whatever you want wherever you want it, whenever you want it, I'm available. Here am I. Send me. Father, thank you for the reminder. The reminder of the worship of heaven. May we capture a fresh view of you today. Father, may our lives be transformed as we think of you And not just you in heaven, but you loved us so much that you left heaven. You left the worship of the angels and you came into this earth and you loved us so much that you died on the cross for our sins. May we never forget that. May we every moment of our waking day be captivated by the cross by the glory that you have that is truly and rightfully yours. And may that glory captivate us to go, to surrender our lives to you, to say, Lord, here am I. Send to me. And may that truth ripple across this auditorium, ripple across those who are watching online, that we would be available for you to bring your message, to shine your light so that people can see our good works and glorify you who are so worthy of our glory and our worship. We thank you for the grace you've given us. Thank you for your word. May our lives continue to testify to the goodness of an almighty God. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.